Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 6. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're at the right podcast. Today we are talking about Season 6, Episode 7, Once More with Feeling, the Buffy musical episode. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author, story coach, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com, where you can learn more about fiction writing, publishing, and book marketing. Along with a breakdown of the episode, today I'll talk about its tight plot structure that keeps moving fast, the way the scenes about Giles' love for Buffy and Anya's and Xander's relationship are placed to make that plot structure work and heighten the tension, how the writers escalated conflict at key points of once more with feeling, why some misdirects about who summoned the demon play fair and others don't, but why even those might not matter for this particular story, and finally examples of subverting expectations that add humor to a dark storyline. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Once More with Feeling aired the first time on November 6, 2001. It was written and directed by Joss Whedon. And I will be including some highlights from the commentary Whedon did on the episode. Its original running time was 50 minutes, about six to seven minutes longer than a typical Buffy episode. And when it was aired in syndication, it was cut back to 42 minutes long. Any good story starts with an opening conflict that is there to draw the reader right into the world of the characters. Sometimes it relates to the main plot, sometimes not. Here, though, the credits themselves are part part of the story because they signal us that this is a very different episode. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is written in large red letters across the screen with a moon in the background. And this is the reason I picked a moon for uh, the background of the Buffy and the Art of Story logo. And there is lighthearted music playing. Each of our core characters is shown one at a time in the moon with their credit next to them. Buffy smiles and laughs. Dawn looks very gothic like a damsel in distress. Spike could be the romantic lead or maybe the villain. He looks a little scornful. He's smoking and Willow ends the cast of characters laughing very much like a introduction to a musical. Then Once More with Feeling shows in red on the screen. I believe one of the few times that the title is shown to the audience, the episode title. A red old-fashioned alarm clock rings, the kind with a clock face and the bells on the top of it and the feet. It's in Buffy's room. Buffy is already awake and she reaches for it, holds it, and just stares at it, not getting out of bed, not shutting it off. So this is the opening conflict without a word. This tells us a lot about how Buffy is feeling. And the filming 
also signals this is a different episode. Joss Whedon in the commentary said the use of lots of bright colors, very dramatic colors, was intentional. You can see that in the lighting as well. The music is pretty happy. The others rush around getting ready for the morning. Tara finds a bramble under her pillow. This is the one that Willow used in the last episode to cast a forgetting spell on Tara. So I don't know if this is supposed to be the next morning or if this has been under the pillow, but Tara doesn't know what it is. She thinks it's just something pretty Willow left for her and she pins it to her sweater and smiles. Meantime, Buffy still lies in bed holding that ringing alarm clock. The scene cuts to the magic box where Xander reads Future Bride magazine, a nice bit of foreshadowing for the end when he fears that he will need to be the bride of the demon that he summoned. There's still no dialogue, just music playing. Uh, we see Anya with Xander as well. Willow and Tara read together and talk. Giles motions Buffy to train. She's been sitting off to the side alone and she follows him into the train room. The scene cuts to the cemetery at night. Buffy patrols and she sings going through the motions. And the song is all about how she is making a show of fighting, but she's just walking through the part. And she sings, nothing seems to penetrate my heart. Three demons in the graveyard start singing with her and say something about she hasn't got that swing and Buffy has fallen onto a grave. She lifts her head and says, thanks for noticing. She worries about sleepwalking through her life forever as she saves a good looking man. And when he starts to sing about how can he ever repay her, she just sings whatever and walks away. She goes on about whether this is really her and she just wants to be alive. And as she says that, she stakes a vampire and all the dust from it fans out behind her, almost like you would see in a Disney musical cartoon with sparkles behind the heroine as she sings the last word, alive. And Whedon said on the DVD that this is a classic Disney first song in a musical, the I Want song, where the heroine tells the audience what she's missing in her life. And for Buffy, she is missing her life. We are well before 10% through the episode, which is where we typically see the story spark or inciting incident that gets the main plot rolling. In some stories, it happens right at the start. And here that's pretty close because I think it is Buffy bursting into song. Something has made her start singing, which clearly is not typical for her. And we will find out it has affected the others as well. At 3 minutes 22 seconds, Buffy enters the magic shop the next morning. It's very bright and sunny. The others ask if John got off to school okay, and Buffy says she thinks so, seeming very distracted, and asks the others if there are any new monsters around, is there any need for research, and finally she straight out asks if anyone burst into song last night, and Xander says, merciful Zeus. Everyone talks at once about how they were doing other things and started singing and dancing like in a musical, and they're all pretty uncomfortable about this, and Whedon said on the DVD that was to put the characters in the place of the 
audience where there is that feeling in musicals of, okay, but why do people just burst into song? It doesn't make any sense. And here it's clear the characters think it makes no sense and they don't want it to happen again. Giles asks what Buffy sang about and she claims she doesn't remember. Xander asks if Giles thinks it will happen again and Tara, talking about research, asks if there are even any books about this. This launches the gang into the song, I've Got a Theory, where they run through various possibilities. Giles starts with, maybe it's a dancing demon, and he's pretty close. Tara and Willow say, maybe it's some kid who's dreaming, a reference back to nightmares in the early seasons, which Tara wasn't there for, but maybe knows about. And she says, maybe they're all stuck in the kid's wacky Broadway nightmare. Xander proposes it could be evil witches, but as Willow and Tara glare at him, switches to how, no, witches are wonderful, women power, so it can't be that. And Anya bursts into a heavy metal song about bunnies and how they have those, quote, hoppy legs and twitchy little noses, end quote. And she ends with sparks flying behind her. It is a really jarring change from the very typical musical sounding I've got a theory and it so fits because everyone just looks at Anya for a second after it and then they go right back into singing. Now we segue into Buffy's song because her theory is it doesn't matter and she sings about what can't they face if they're together they've been through apocalypses and she says, quote, why should we care, end quote. And the song can be read two ways. One is why should we care because we have surmounted so much together, but also why should we care? There's nothing new, nothing matters, and Buffy just is completely disengaged. And Giles looks worried as they sing. No one else notices that double layer. And it takes a while for Giles to really join in. And he smiles when Buffy jokes in her line. She says, quote, it's do or die. Hey, I've died twice, end quote. And they end together with, there's nothing we can't face. And Anya throws in, except for bunnies. On the DVD, Whedon commented, on this that it sounds like a rousing anthem but Buffy is really saying she doesn't care and that's why Giles is the last to be drawn in because he is seeing what's behind the words. After the song Xander says it was disturbing. So here is where I start thinking okay are Xander's lines playing fair with the audience because he's the one who summoned the demon. We'll see later there are there are things that make you think Dawn did it. And those, I think, do work because when you go back and re-watch, you can see how they fit also with Dawn's character and that she didn't summon the demon. I'm not sure that Xander's lines work both ways. I suppose here, his earlier merciful Zeus, his questions about will it happen again and finding it disturbing could be, one, he's covering up that he did this, but two, he didn't know exactly what would happen, so he may have some questions. So I, I think that so far, the writers are playing fair as far as Xander goes. Buffy asks 
what Giles thinks is causing this, and he says he thought it didn't matter. And Buffy responds, I'm not exactly quaking in my stylish yet affordable boots, but there's definitely something unnatural going on here, and that doesn't usually lead to hugs and puppies. At 7 minutes 31 seconds, they check to see if it's affecting anyone else. Buffy opens the door. Outside, a group of people sing and dance about the dry cleaners getting the mustard out. And the lead singer is one of the producers and directors, David Fury. The scene cuts to later that day. Dawn bursts in and says they won't believe what happened at school. And she's deflated when the others say singing and dancing. And she says, no, she gave birth to a pterodactyl. And Anya says, oh my god, did it sing? Willow and Tara are whispering to each other and suddenly claim they need to get a mumble mumble volume from home. As they're talking, Dawn swipes a pendant from a magic box counter and Willow and Tara leave. So that is our first both misdirect about Dawn, but also something that contributes to a plot turn later. At 8 minutes 37 seconds, Willow and Tara walk in the park. It's a beautiful day, and they joke about how they don't have any books at home, but how could they stay in on such a lovely afternoon? Tara starts singing about the world being in enchanted, all of the things she feels Willow brought out in her, and how wonderful it is to have somebody share her magical world. It is a beautiful ballad. It's called Under Your Spell. It works both for an audience who doesn't know the backstory because it's a lovely love song. Amber Benson has such an amazing voice. So many of the lines have dual meanings. She's singing, I'm under your spell, not realizing she is under Willow's spell, the forgetting spell. And she sings, quote, now I'm bathed in light, something just isn't right, end quote. And she doesn't mean it this way, but yes, something isn't right. This also is an example of dramatic irony for ongoing watchers because we know something Tara doesn't about what Willow has done. The song transitions to their bedroom as Willow and Tara dance and then Tara lies on her back on the bed and eventually floats up in the air and there are lyrics like I can feel you inside um, spread beneath my willow tree. Joss Whedon in the DVD called it pornography but commented that it also works as a love song if you just listen to the lyrics and don't know the rest of the context. The Buffy fandom wiki noted that several countries cut this scene out when they aired the musical because they did see it as pornographic. The song cuts off mid-sentence to Xander in the magic shop who says, I bet they're not even working. And Buffy, showing how disconnected she is, says, who now? She then tries to cut off Xander's speculations about what Willow and Tara are doing because Dawn is sitting off to the side and Dawn says it's okay. She knows about this stuff. Besides, it's all kind of romantic. So this is another line that could mislead the audience into thinking Dawn summoned the demon, but it does also fit, I believe, Dawn might say it's it's romantic. Xander and Buffy both say, no, it's not. Dawn says, come on, dancing around songs, what could be wrong with that? And at 12 minutes, 13 seconds, we find out 
exactly what could be wrong. The scene cuts to a man singing and dancing. Actually, I think he's he's just dancing faster and faster and faster. A demon watches him. Smoke starts to come out of the man, and he bursts into flame, screams, and dies. And the demon says, that's entertainment. And we cut to a commercial. That happened. This is a 50-minute episode almost exactly at one quarter of the way through. And that is where I look for the first major plot turn that I think of as the one quarter twist. It should come from outside the protagonist, which it does here. It comes from outside of Buffy, spin the story in a new direction because now much of the story will be devoted to finding out whether these deaths are related to dealing with the danger and it raises the stakes. Now, technically, it didn't raise them because these already were the stakes. We just didn't know it yet, but it gives the episode a lot of power. Otherwise, we'd think what Dawn thinks. Okay, singing and dancing, what's wrong with that? It's kind of romantic. Having this clear plot turn raises the tension, keeps the audience engaged, and makes the story move forward. And I don't think it is accidental that this entire episode is so well structured, has very strong plot turns. Despite that, like all the way, the last episode and some of the other episodes this season, there are still a lot of stories going on. There's lots of movement in season arcs, but there is no problem telling what is the main plot and what those key plot turns are. And this is the first episode written and directed by Joss Whedon. And based on the commentaries, he didn't have as much input into those earlier episodes because he was doing the musical. This is especially significant to me doing the podcast because I had been thinking, okay, maybe I'm looking at season six the wrong way that unlike or more so than any of the previous seasons, it is about season-long arcs and that's why you're not seeing as clear a plot structure as you do in most episodes in previous seasons. But this suggests to me it is partly that Whedon probably is more focused on a structured story, whether he does that uh, consciously or not, that he constructs more solid plots and is able to bring that out more or maybe it reflects simply how much time he spent on this episode because it sounded like he spent the whole of the beginning of the season working on this where the other writers were turning out episode after episode. One more thing about that pacing and those plot turns, some of making those plot turns happen at the right times has to do with the placement of the scenes for the subplots. And keeping the tension up as well is partly about that placement because now when we come back from the commercial, we get a scene between Xander and 
Anya that could have happened earlier. It could have come before we see this man burn up, but it works so much better after because as the audience, now we know there is great danger and that adds a feeling of tension as we watch Xander and Anya go through a song that primarily relates to their season arc of their relationship versus contributing that much to this particular episode. Nonetheless, it does not feel slow. It doesn't feel like a digression. It doesn't make the main plot unclear because it happens after that major plot turn. So we as the audience know what the main plot is, where it's going, and what the danger is. Anya and Xander lie in bed. They are talking about breakfast, and as Xander goes on about pancakes and waffles, Anya starts singing the song, I'll Never Tell. She covers being a former vengeance demon and wanting to marry Xander, but each verse ends with, I'll never tell, because they are both going to sing about things that they don't want to say to the other. The first time I saw the musical episode, there was a problem with the broadcast. I think it was just with the UPN affiliate in Chicago. And the signal kept cutting out at crucial times, including during the ending. So I did not know that Xander was the one who summoned the demon. And I think maybe all of the ending from right about when that's going to be revealed on just didn't play. And I wish I could remember my first reaction to so many parts of the episode. And it's always hard to do that for me with Buffy because I've rewatched so many times. It's it's often hard to recall how the story struck me, but it's especially so with the musical because all I remember is that extreme frustration. The network did end up re-airing it, but they re-aired the cut version, the 42-minute version. Parts were missing, and I would swear that they cut out the part where Xander says that he's the one who summoned the demon. Now, I looked on the Buffy fandom wiki, and, and they don't list that as one of the things that was cut out. So it's quite possible that I simply missed it the combination of seeing it the first time and believing that Dawn had summoned the demon maybe just stuck with me so that when I rewatched, I just didn't pick up on that moment. Or maybe I did and I, I simply forgot it later. And maybe this is part of why the Xander misleads really jump out at me because I really thought uh, he did it for so very long. The other thing about Xander being the one who summoned the demon is that Xander's never really held accountable for the deaths because we'll find out we only saw the one death but that other people burnt up too and I didn't think about that either until I went to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer discussion group at a bookstore in Chicago and I met my friend Carrie Walsh who has been a guest on the podcast she pointed out that the show really hits on other instances where characters either kill someone or think they have. Think about Buffy in the episode Ted, where she thinks she has killed Ted. But Xander, he's 
apologetic, but not nearly enough so for having caused these deaths. So I've been thinking I might do a patron bonus episode about why is that and what's going on there. If you have thoughts about why doesn't Xander get taken to task for this, please feel free to share them. You can find me on social media at Lisa M. Lilly. For Instagram or Twitter, comment on YouTube, or email me, buffystorypod at gmail.com. And Xander joins in, and he says some beautiful things, too, about he'll never let her go and their love will grow. But there are all these complaints. Some are funny and some are serious. Some refer back to previous episodes like the diseases Xander got from a Shumash tribe. Xander worries Anya will think he's ordinary. She worries it's all temporary. He's worried he's marrying a demon. She talks about him hiding behind his Buffy. And they also both dance. Anya is an excellent dancer. And I buy that for her character because she's over a thousand years old. I'm guessing Anya learned to dance really well at some point. Xander is just okay. And that's where this musical conceit works because these characters are being forced into being in a musical. So they're not all going to have the same level of talent. Near the end, they crawl across a table to each other as they confess their deepest fears. Anya's include all her experiences with, quote, wedding and betrayal, end quote, at the end. And they say together they could really make marriage a hell. They fall onto the couch laughing at the end of the song. Quick note from the DVD commentary about one of the lines here, and it's one that always stood out to me where Anya sings something like, will I look good when I've gotten old? doesn't quite seem to fit the rest of the song and Whedon commented that he rewrote that line to make it smoother and fit the rhyme better but that it makes it sound like Anya is sort of vain that what she's worried about is losing her looks but the original line was will he look at me when I've gotten old which doesn't flow quite as well and Whedon said he Looking back, he thinks he should have stuck with the meaning versus the flow of the song. I did a little bit of songwriting in another life, and yeah, sometimes you are looking at that choice between what flows well and what really hits the meaning. At 17 minutes, 16 seconds, Anya and Xander walk with Giles on a sunny sidewalk, both complaining about what a nightmare it was the night before. They also yell at each other a little. Anya is mainly concerned that their number was not a breakaway pop hit. Xander says to Giles, work with me, British man. Give me an axe and show me where to point it. This is the strongest line for me that shows not playing fair with the audience because Xander knows what's happening. He doesn't know there's danger physically from it, but he knows why the singing and dancing. And yeah, he could be pretending. I guess that's what we have to figure. He's pretending to throw suspicion off himself, but this seems kind of extreme. Giles starts telling them he learned something disturbing, but we as the audience miss part of it because a woman is singing to a, a police officer about her parking ticket, why it's not fair. She says, I think that hydrant wasn't there. And this is a uh, producer and writer, Marty Knoxon, who has a beautiful voice. Giles comes back in saying, as in burnt up. So we know he's talking about that man. 
that we saw being fried. Giles doesn't know if it's related to the singing and dancing. As far as he can tell, people spontaneously combusted and the police are taking witness arias. Xander now asks, are they sure it's related to the dancing and singing? So that fits with him knowing that he's concerned that he caused this. But I do want to say, Xander, it's Sunnydale. Like, of course you did a spell and something terrible happened. And I I don't quite buy that Xander wouldn't fess up here, knowing that possibly it caused someone to be killed. Giles says Buffy is looking for leads. At least she's supposed to be. But she doesn't seem that engaged with it. And Xander tells him Buffy's easing back into things. They pulled her out of hell dimension, quote, ergo the weirdness. The important thing is to be there for her, end quote. This is good exposition through minor conflict if some of the audience doesn't know this backstory about Buffy that the friends all believe she was in hell. Though on the DVD, Wynn commented that the musical as a whole really doesn't work if you don't know the series well. At 18 minutes, 55 seconds, Buffy goes to Spike's crypt and he says, come to serenade me? Buffy asks Spike if he has any idea what's happening after she turns down his offer of a drink with a line something like a world of no. And Spike says, oh, so that's all. You just come to pump me for information. And Buffy says, what else would I want to pump you for? I really just said that, didn't I? Spike holds open the door for her, tells her he doesn't know anything, glad she stopped by. And she's surprised by his bad mood. And now Spike starts to sing James Marsters so good. You can tell that he also is a singer by trade. Joss Whedon said that Tara's ballad was the first thing that came to his mind for the musical and also a line for Spike's song, Rest in Peace, the line, if my heart could beat, it would break my chest. Spike sings that he died many years ago, but Buffy makes him feel like he's not dead. But he's not happy because he goes on that he's figured out why she comes to see him. She's ashamed of how she feels. She can't tell her friends, but she can say it to a dead man and that doesn't make it real. So until I broke this down for the podcast, I always thought here he meant her feelings about being pulled out of heaven, her her sadness, her depression that she can't tell her friends. And now I think that it is, he is saying, you have feelings for me and you can't admit them and you're ashamed and you can't tell your friends, which makes more sense with the shame part. I would also love to hear what all of you think about that. So please uh, send me your thoughts. I'm really curious. Did I just completely miss it? all these years thinking he's talking about that. I knew he also was expressing his feelings for her and that he believed that she at least on some level returned them, but I I wasn't clear that that's what he was hitting when he talked about whispering in a dead man's ear. The song continues that since he's dead to her, she should go away and leave him in peace and he throws a bottle against the wall. And Buffy turns to leave, but then there's more irony because he stops her. 
And he kneels before her and tells her she has a willing slave and goes on that she loves to play the part that she might misbehave, but until she's ready to do that, leave him alone. And one of the things Whedon commented on here was that, yes, Spike is saying, leave me alone. And yet, as he says it, then he constantly pops up in the next frame. So he wants her to leave, but he wants to be with her. And that is shown visually as well as in the lyrics. Now they walk in the graveyard. There's a quieter part of the song. And he says he knows he should go, but he keeps following her. Uh, Spike disrupts a nighttime funeral and ends up in an open grave. He falls on his back, pulling Buffy with him. She lands on top of him, but climbs out and runs. And Spike pops his head up out of the grave and says, so you're not staying then? Which is so perfect. It really expresses his conflicted feelings. This is an example of a song that moves the plot along. And that's something else Whedon commented on in the DVD that he really wanted as much as possible for each song to move the story. And some do and some don't. But he saw this one as progressing the plot because Spike expresses feelings that he otherwise would not because of the spell and the song. At 22 minutes, 46 seconds, Dawn and Tara talk in Dawn's room. Tara says Willow has a lead about this demon. It's some sort of Lord of the Dance, but not the scary one. And Dawn asks if they know who summoned the demon. Tara says no, but Willow will figure it out. She's brainy. So another nice mislead about Dawn. We could think she's asking to see if they've figured it out yet but it could also just be being curious. So it works both ways. Dawn tells Tara she's so happy that she and Willow made up that when the two of them had that fight over magic, it made Dawn feel bad. And Tara's confused. She and Willow never fought about magic. And Dawn thinks Tara's just trying to reassure her. And as Dawn keeps talking, Tara looks at that bramble on her sweater and the light dawns no pun intended. Uh, she tells Dawn she's sorry. She has to go to the shop for something. Will Dawn be okay? Dawn reassures Tara that yes, the 15-year-old can be alone in the locked house. And Dawn really does seem okay. It's clear she doesn't want Tara to feel bad, but as soon as she's alone, the music becomes very sad. Dawn turns to her jewelry box and looks through all her stolen items. Now, almost exactly at the middle of the episode, we have a major reversal. Dawn sings a few lines about does anybody even notice or care? She takes out that pendant that she stole earlier and puts it on. And these two giant creepy looking puppet guys, they look like marionettes, appear and grab her. They throw a blanket over her and she screams at 24 minutes, 41 seconds. And we cut to a commercial. This subverts expectations. As Whedon says on the DVD, we think we are going to get a sweet girl ballad. And instead, she puts on that pendant, these puppets appear, and it takes it into something completely different when they grab her. I see this as working much better than the subversion of expectations with the old man in the last episode all the way because we are so much more invested in Dawn than we were in the old man. We care about her. And so the subversion has much more power. This also is an excellent midpoint reversal. It's clearly a reversal for Dawn as a character. And she doesn't really have a 
subplot here. There's a little bit, there's some character movement here in her loneliness, uh, in her being taken by the demon, in her reaching to connect with Buffy. But it's not a super strong subplot, and that doesn't matter because it's a little bit of movement in her season arc, but that major reversal for her is also a major reversal for Buffy, and it's very clear. There's no question. Dawn does not want to be taken away. She screams. They throw this blanket over her. It's clear they have nefarious motives. So again, unlike all the way, where I struggled to figure out what was the midpoint, it was very subtle. We didn't know what was going on in Justin the vampire's head. We didn't know what was going on in Dawn's mind. Here we know it's clear, and it's clearly a reversal for Buffy, and it changes things. In all the way, Dawn was in danger the whole time, though she didn't know it. Here, Dawn personally was not in danger till she put that pendant on and they took her away. So now Buffy's sister is at great risk. So serious midpoint reversal. And that is a great example of how to make your plots and subplots work well together. You don't have to have a midpoint at the same spot, but if it works, that can be very, very strong and can keep your story from feeling like it's going off in too many directions or like it's slow because we're not sure what's going on with the main plot or what is the most important thing. In the next scene, Dawn's lying on a pool table. There's ballet music and Dawn dances. And Michelle Trachtenberg is really good here and tries to get away from these creepy puppet minions. 25 minutes, 52 seconds, she slides across the floor to a tap dancing demon in a red suit. He's very devil-like. He sings, asks why she ran away. He takes off his smile and hands it to her, very creepy. He says he came from the imagination and is there because of her invocation. The two dance together. He says he knows what she feels, explains about singing and when you've got to let it out. He also sings about bringing the fun in, making Don hope that he might be a good demon there to make people happy. So it doesn't seem that Don knows about the deaths, but now he sings and explains what happens when the melodies go on too long. There's too much energy. He opens a door and shows her a fried corpse and says that's the penalty when life is just a song. Then he sings that she'll be his queen in his kingdom below and Dawn's outfit magically transforms into a light blue shiny dress. Dawn says she's 15 and this quote, queen things illegal, end quote. And then she tells him her sister is the slayer. The song stops and he tells his minions to find the slayer and get her there. He wants to see the slayer burn. This is an escalation now. Not only is Dawn in danger and presumably Buffy will be when she comes to save her, but Buffy is directly in danger now. It is clear the villain wants to see Buffy burn. This further raises the stakes and the fact that this happens before the next scene where Buffy and Giles have their training montage and Giles sings helps keep that tension high. You could have flipped those two scenes and not altered the actual plot because we would just be seeing Buffy and Giles first and then 
dawn with a demon. Probably those things in real time happen simultaneously. But having the threat, the direct threat to Buffy first, and the threat to take Dawn to the underworld creates so much tension, escalates the conflict so much that it keeps us engaged in the next scene, which really you could actually lift out of this episode, though it is a very moving scene on its own. And that is another way to do that. When you have a scene that is mainly about character development, or if you're in a series, you're moving a series arc, and you don't want it to feel like it slows the story, have that thing that escalates the main plot first, that creates more danger, then you can go to this other scene. So at 29 minutes, 27 seconds, Buffy kicks a board apart in the training room. Giles doesn't think they need to work too much on her strength, and Buffy responds, yeah, I'm pretty spry for a corpse. Giles looks a little worried at her tone and offhandedness, and she grips the handholds on a vaulting horse and goes into a handstand. Giles asks if she spoke to Dawn about Halloween, and Buffy says she thought he took care of it and goes on, what would I do without you? And she's down on the floor again. She turns to face him and says, okay, I'm ready. So that's what I mean by this scene could have come earlier because it arises out of their interactions of Buffy saying, oh, I thought you took care of that. That's what prompts Giles's song, which is one of the most moving in in the whole episode and it's hard to pick one here because they're all so good. Uh, Whedon said he knew that Anthony Stewart Head would have the saddest ballad. Giles sings to Buffy that she's not ready for the world outside, that she's pretending she's okay and he knows she's not. And he says he knows he'd stand by her but he fears he's standing in her way, that she won't rise to the challenge because he'll always step in for her and as he's singing he is throwing knives at her that she is blocking and ducking and he says how or sings how he wishes he had the right words and he could slay all her demons and stay there with her but now he sees that he's the problem while I don't quite buy that Giles would really conclude that that he should not stay with Buffy and be there for her this is such a a beautiful song that always makes me cry. While he's singing, the scene shifts to Willow in the magic box as Tara hurries in and looks up that bramble that she has pinned to her sweater. We go back to Buffy, who's doing flips in the foreground and then punching a bag. And it's clear through the song, she is not hearing Giles. It's the way it happens in musicals sometime when one character is singing and the other is completely unaware of what they're saying, but it has so much emotional power here because that is one of the problems that Buffy's so disconnected. After Giles finishes singing, they face each other at the end and Buffy says, did you just say something? On the DVD, another comment we made about specific lines, originally, there is a line in there about Buffy ignoring the cries of those she loves. And originally it was about her ignoring her sister's cries, but we didn't changed it so that it was broader and more general and it would fit as we see Tara coming in to figure this out about Willow. So it's Buffy unaware of 
everybody, disconnected from everybody. And I think that's so powerful, both for the episode to have that resonance with Tara and Willow, but also because it makes it encapsulate where Buffy is at for the season to date, how disconnected she is. Sometimes being more specific is more powerful. Here, being more general is more powerful. Whedon also said about this song that it is every parent's dilemma. You want to take care of your child, but you also want to teach them to stand on their own. And this is what Giles is struggling with. Tara now sees in a book that Leith's bramble is used for forgetting spells and the drawing looks just like the bramble on her sweater. She sings a reprise of I'm Under Your Spell, distraught that Willow played with her memory, especially after all she's been through. And she looks down at Willow just as Buffy comes out of the training room into the shop and joins Willow near the bookcase. They're talking, we don't hear them because we're hearing Tara. Giles comes out as well, sings a reprise of his song and it's beautiful counterpoint as he and Tara sing both of them about how much they love Buffy and Willow respectively and not wanting to leave them and Whedon commented on how it is two people that Tara and Giles love so much who don't hear them at all that is so well done and has such emotional power bringing those two together also Both of them are such good singers, so it is just such a pleasure to listen to. What do Luke Skywalker and Lizzie Bennett have in common? Both their stories have a super strong midpoint, and I cover both Star Wars A New Hope and Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, as well as many other works of fiction in my course, How to Plot Your Novel from Idea to First Draft, which you can find at writingasasecondcareer.com slash plot your novel. If you're finding the podcast helpful but want a little more help plotting your first draft, writing it, or maybe you've got part of it done and you feel like it's not quite working or you're stalling out, this course could be helpful. It takes you through clear steps to come up with and sort out your ideas, to plot your major plot points, and to write your first draft, as well as figure out what happens between those plot points. It can work well whether you like to outline everything in depth in advance, or you like to figure out your story as you write, or do a little of both, which is the case for me. You'll learn how to come up with and choose ideas that have enough conflict to last for an entire novel, how to build characters and conflict that keeps the story engaging right from the beginning, how to get past common sticking points as you sort out your plot or write your first draft, and most important, how to have fun while you are doing it. You can find out more at writingasasecondcareer.com slash plot your novel, all one word, or follow the link in the show notes. Spike bursts through the door, dragging one of those puppet minions. Tara is very frosty to Willow, and Willow looks confused. Spike pushes the minion forward and tells him to sing. 
And now we get a funny subversion of expectations because the music swells, we're expecting another big song, and instead the minion just talks. He blurts out that the master has the Slayer's sister hostage at the bronze and that the demon's going to take Dawn to the underworld to be his queen at midnight. So now we are at the three-quarter turn, the last major plot turn that grows from the midpoint and takes the story in another new direction. It also sometimes raises the stakes. We're at 34 minutes, 33 seconds. Actually, we're not quite at that turn. This moment could be the three-quarter term, but there is an even stronger one in just about half a minute. It seems like a turn here when the minion tells them all that the demon has dawn. But again, that doesn't actually increase the danger to anybody. There already was danger. So there's no raising of the stakes here, though it does turn the story because now it will be about saving Dawn. The minion throws off Spike and runs and Spike comments strong. Someday he'll be a real boy. And Buffy says, so Dawn's in trouble. Must be Tuesday. She sounds so discouraged, but she asks the others, what's the plan? Xander's ready to mount up, and now we get that turn. This raises the stakes because Giles says, no, they're not going with. And Anya says, Dawn may have had the wrong idea in summoning this creature, but I've seen some of these underworld child bride deals, and they never end well. Maybe once. But Giles says that Buffy needs to go alone. She's shocked, as are the others, especially Spike, who starts to argue. And Giles has a great line. He says, if I want your opinion, Spike, I'll never want your opinion. Willow starts to suggest a spell. Tara jumps in and says no so vehemently. Willow is taken aback. Spike tells Buffy he's got her back, but she points out that he's saying that he wanted her to stay away from him. Xander makes fun of Spike for singing, quote, a little song, end quote, and Anya asks if it was a breakaway pop hit. Spike says, fine, I hope you dance till you burn, you and the little bit. Another example of all these interweaving storylines, Spike's feelings for Buffy, Tara and Willow's troubles over magic, the main plot of Finding Dawn, Giles struggling with how best to help Buffy. All of these things are going on and yet this main plot is moving forward quickly. Clearly the stakes are high and all these interweave so expertly. At 35 minutes, 52 seconds, Buffy says, you're really not coming to Giles and asks what he expects her to do. And he says her best. At 36 minutes, seven seconds, the scene cuts to barrels with flames in them. People are dancing. It's dark out. Not clear if the flames started from the dancing and singing, but probably. Buffy walks through the night alone singing. She doesn't feel anything even when she touches the fire. She says everyone's turning away from her. She wants the fire back. She doesn't know why she can't feel anything. And as she sings, we see the demon throw Dawn into a throne-like seat next to him. And we get moments with the other characters who also sing lines. We cut to Spike, who is singing about how Buffy's probably laughing at him, and he hopes she fries. He'll be free if that bitch dies. And then he turns and says, I better help her out, and starts heading out to find her. The demon also sings, oh, and I should have said the name of the song is Walk Through the Fire. 
which is part of the chorus. The demon also sings. At some points, all the characters sing together. Giles at the magic box does a verse about whether this will help Buffy leaving her on her own or if he's leaving Dawn in danger. The others join in and they all finally decide to go and help Buffy. Spike sings about how first he'll kill Buffy and then he'll save her and later sings first he'll save her then he'll kill her. Buffy sings about the endless days finally ending in a blaze. We see all of them walking. Spike leaps over a chain link fence and Buffy alone kicks down the door to the bronze. At 39 minutes 25 seconds the demon says showtime. Dawn swears to Buffy she didn't call the demon and Buffy tells her not to worry. She offers a deal. If she can't kill the demon he can take her to Hellsville in Dawn's place and the demon says what if I kill you and Buffy says trust me won't help. He says that's gloomy and she tells him that's life. He asks what she really feels isn't life miraculous. At 40 minutes 21 seconds Buffy sings and dances what starts as a inspiring song at least for the lyrics about the wonders of life but the way she's singing and that it includes so many cliches tells us how she feels she fights the minions as she does it and shifts to singing about fighting so hard to be like other girls her friends come into the warehouse as she's saying don't give me songs Giles tells the others that Buffy needs backup. So this is another subverting of expectations because rather than jumping in to help her fight, Tara and Anya align themselves behind her, dance with her, and sing backup. Another time that the subversion adds humor to a bleak situation and song because in her song, Buffy is pleading with a demon to give her something to sing about. The song speeds up. She and Tara and Anya dance faster. Then Buffy goes on about every single verse making life worse and how her friends don't know why she ignores all the things to dance and live for. At 42 minutes, 21 seconds, we're shifting into the start of the climax as Buffy sings about the joy of life when you know that it ends, but that depends if they let you go. Now we'll get a climax of the subplot of Buffy's disconnect from her friends and of her not telling them the truth about where she's at emotionally and why and that she was not in hell. Why this works so well is because we'll get that climax. So a climax is where the opposing forces have their final confrontation and resolve the conflict. We will get that resolution, that climax, and then immediately a climax of the main plot about the demon wanting to take Dawn to hell. So now as Buffy sings, she is going to tell the truth. She approaches the demon on the stage, shifts to a very quiet part of the song, and says that she was pulled out of heaven. She thinks she was in heaven. And the music itself changes. There are diminished chords in there. It gives it a almost discordant, plaintive, plaintive feeling. And the others look shocked. Willow is especially stricken. That is the climax of that subplot. Now at 42 minutes 22 seconds, we move to 
the climax with the demon. And actually, I'll say there's really three climaxes here because now we are going to get a bit more of a climax for Buffy struggling with her feelings. How will she handle her feelings? And her answer has been she's going to offer herself to the demon. Buffy sings, please give her something. He shakes his head. Buffy dives off the stage. She dances faster and faster. She spins and swirls her arms. She does slides. She's alone and and the dancing becomes more and more frenetic. And at 44 minutes in, the demon leans forward as smoke starts coming out of Buffy. Something happens that shows that we follow the rules here of the magic because the way this spell works is the singing and dancing makes people tell the truth. And here, Buffy has now told the truth to her friends, but now Spike will act on and tell his truth. He comes in, he grabs Buffy and stops her from dancing and the smoking stops. She is not going to burst into flames. So he saves her, but it fits the magic because he tells her in a slow part of the song that life is not bliss. Life is just this. It's living. And he goes on that she can only heal by living and she has to go on so that one of them is living. Buffy is still stricken as she looks at him, but this does save her. And Dawn says, the hardest thing in this world is to live in it. A callback to the gift and also the theme of that episode or a theme of that episode and this episode. Now, this is a line that according to the Buffy fandom wiki, uh, and that's buffy.fandom.com slash wiki, that line was cut in the 42-minute version, which is really a shame because it adds so much here. The others all look sad and the demon claps. He says, now that was a show-stopping number. Not quite the fireworks I was looking for. He chuckles when the others protest and he is still intent on taking Dawn with him. So in the way, we have had yet another subplot climax here when Spike saves Buffy from burning. She will, at least for this episode, go on trying to live because of Spike. Dawn insists she didn't summon the demon. He points out she's wearing his talisman, and she stutters and stumbles out that she found it on the floor at the magic box and she forgot, but she didn't summon anything. Giles realizes if it was at the shop, one of them must have done it, and Xander sheepishly raises his hand. He says he didn't know what was going to happen. He thought it'd be fun and dances and songs, and he tells Anya he wanted to make sure they'd get their happy ending. Xander should have raised his hand sooner, and I think he absolutely would have back when Spike brought that minion puppet into the magic box and John was clearly in danger. I don't buy that even Xander, who can be somewhat careless, wouldn't say, look, I summoned the demon because maybe that would have helped them save Dawn. Now it turns out probably it wouldn't, but he doesn't know that. But here we are, Xander is now finally fessing up. The demon laughs. He thinks all this worked out great. Xander's worried he'll have to be the demon's underworld queen. But the demon says just this once he'll wave that clause. 
for the overall plot, Buffy has prevailed with the help of her friends, as she often does in the series. But she has a Pyrrhic victory. That's where you win, but the cost is almost unbearably high. It's not literally Pyrrhic here. She doesn't burst into flames, but it's a very high cost because she ended up telling the truth to her friends about where she was. Now we're in the falling action part of the episodes where we tie up loose ends and resolve subplots. At 44 minutes, 19 seconds, the demon tells them all to smile. They beat the bad guy and it was so much fun and not one of them can say it ended well. So he's singing that as well. He sings about all the secrets they concealed and says, quote, say you're happy now once more with feeling, end quote. He disappears with a last note and a swirl of light and says he'll see them all in hell, or sings that. The group starts singing, where do we go from here? Dawn begins it. They all eventually stand in a line and hold hands, singing about the battle is over. They kind of won, but they don't quite feel victorious. They talk about walking alone in fear, and where do we go from here? Spike turns with everyone but then suddenly comes out of the spell and James Marsters is amazing here if you don't re-watch anything well I want to tell you re-watch everything but this moment where you see in his gesture and his expression and how he moves his body one second he's with everyone in this song and the next he's just done and he half laughs and leaves in disgust the others continue singing, and as they sing, quote, the curtains close on a kiss, end quote, the scene cuts to the alley. Buffy follows Spike out, and he tells her to go back inside, finish the big group sing, get her kumbayayas out. Buffy doesn't want to, and Spike tells her the day she figures out what she does want, quote, there'll probably be a parade, 76 bloody trombones, end quote. And that's when Buffy reprises her last song and sings i touch the fire and it freezes me i look into it and it's black i can't sing james marster's part but he also reprises his song they sing together she's saying this isn't real she just wants to feel and he sings about how she can make him feel alive even though he's dead and they kiss as the other voices keep singing from inside where do we go from here there is triumphant music the end shows in big red letters across spike and buffy kissing and a curtain closes this also subverts expectations because the musical yes you want to end with the two leads getting together but it's not a triumphant kiss or true love it is this mixed happiness and unhappiness here and Whedon said these were two songs of longing for Spike and Buffy and he found the spots where they could work together Oh, and the little monster, he sings his Gur Arg as well. And that is the end of the musical. A couple other things from the commentary, the most striking thing to me was that Whedon said, with writing, the more restrictions you have, the more your work is done for you. And he talked about things like he knew with Amber Benson's voice, he wanted a ballad for Tara and that it had to happen early it was going to be this beautiful ballad before things got 
Dyer. So that told him where that would be. Michelle Trachtenberg and Allison Hannigan didn't want to sing, so he knew Don would have this dance, this ballet. Whedon also said he knew where the musical would end, that a musical has to end with a kiss, so we had to get there. And this is how I feel about using a story structure. It doesn't have to be the one that I talk about. For me, that is the simplest one and the clearest one for me to start with, and then I work from there. But it really does make it easier to write the rest. The more restrictions you have, and, and with something like TV, you have got your time limit restrictions, with a novel, there is to a certain extent with your genre, there are page limit restrictions. There are common tropes that you might want to hit. Rather than hemming you in and making you less creative, those can make you more creative because now you focus on the parts where you do have room to move and the parts that are set, you know what needs to go there. As far as ending with a kiss, Whedon said he knew two things needed to happen to get there. And this is a great example of how you can sort of reverse engineer your story. If you know where you need to end, then you back up and you figure out what has to happen to get there authentically. And he said Spike had to tell Buffy to go away. He had to talk about his love for her, share his love for her, but also say, yeah, go away. I would rather be on my own and without you, which he said always attracts the other person. And then two, Spike had to save Buffy by bringing her a message of hope. But he commented that it's a desolate sort of hope, as in all his shows, which I agree on. And that is also why it subverts the musical a bit. Separate comment that's interesting. He said, Xander summoned the demon, and that was, quote, just for fun, end quote. So maybe that is both why Xander's lines don't quite fit. Whedon didn't say, but maybe who really summoned the demon was almost an afterthought. And that's part of why the episode works, despite that it's a bit of a cheat I don't buy that uh, Xander spends that much time just covering his tracks, but it ultimately doesn't matter because the power of this episode doesn't ride on who summoned the demon. It is primarily about Buffy's emotional journey. It's about all those truths coming out. And that's why even though in a way, Xander being the one who summoned the demon kind of saves everything because now Dawn's off the hook, the demon doesn't want to take Xander. In another kind of story, that could feel really flat because it's just, oh, hey, guess what? No problem. Buffy didn't actually do anything to make that part happen, but we are much more invested in Buffy. That moment when she tells the truth and then her dance when she almost burns up. That's where all the peril and emotion is. That is it other than foreshadowing, which does include spoilers. So I hope you will stick around for that. If not, Thank you so much for listening and a special thank you to patrons who support the show. Come back in two weeks for the next episode, Tabula Rasa, where Willow deals with the fallout of Tara learning about her spell and the whole gang struggles with what they now know about Buffy. And we're back for foreshadowing, which includes spoilers. I talked in the break about how Xander doesn't suffer repercussions in this episode. In fact, he never suffers them. I don't think it is 
ever even mentioned in the series again. Other things about Xander do carry through that line in Anya's and Xander's song about how he hides behind his Buffy and Anya's worries about specifically, quote, wedding and betrayal, close quote, foreshadow Hell's Bells. Xander literally betrays Anya at the wedding by not showing up for it, by taking off what the demon uses to scare him off or at least cement his fears is a flash forward and part of it is that Buffy is dead and Xander got injured trying to help Buffy so he can't work anymore and Anya makes the comment about well it didn't help did it or she died anyway so this conflict over Buffy is a little bit of their issues more so certainly his feelings about his family and so forth but a lot foreshadowed there Giles and Tara of course here both sing about having to leave and they both will do that Tara and Tabula Rasa will move out and Giles gets on the plane and leaves the moments here where they sing about this are less foreshadowing and more steps in their season arcs lots of dawn foreshadowing here one thing is when she reassures Tara the 15 year old can be alone in the locked house but then her sadness at being left alone and that foreshadows so much of how dawn feels in this season and no one is trying to make her feel left out but it nonetheless happens and her loneliness probably is more that disconnect from Buffy it's not just that everyone's busy Dawn in this episode is hanging out in the magic box with them but Buffy is so disconnected and so not close with Dawn and we will see all of that play out in the rest of the season it's easy to miss it, but there is a mention in this episode of other songs that Xander and Anya sang, and we get to see one of them in Selfless in season seven, where Anya slaughters the frat boys, and there is a flashback to another musical number that she sings. I don't remember the title. This might be it. She sings, I Will Be His Misses," and that too always breaks my heart. Whedon's comment on the DVD about this is every parent's dilemma for Giles. You want to take care of your child, but also want to teach them to stand on their own. Hits at some of my problems with Giles leaving. And the reason I'm talking about it here in foreshadowing is because this goes to the whole arc. I never bought Giles taking off. Now the others will point out to him or Buffy will, how can you leave now when you know where Buffy has been, that she was in heaven, how hard it is for her. And he says something like, well, especially now, if you see him leaving as a metaphor for the parent needing the child to stand on their own. There might be times it's appropriate for a parent to say, no, I'm not going to bail you out. Um, I'm not going to help you with this. You need to stand on your own. The trouble is the metaphor doesn't quite land because it's such a unique situation. This would be like saying to your child who has been through a horrible trauma and is struggling to deal with it and is deeply depressed saying, you know what, buck up, stand on your own. You just got to deal with life. Yeah, Buffy's the slayer, so certainly she has always been more adult than someone her age would be. She's had to have more resilience. She has had to deal with so much. But in my view, this is why the metaphor fails, because in no way do you buy that a caring parent would think the thing to do for a traumatized child at 
at that level where Buffy's at with that level of trauma would be to choose that moment to be like, oh, sorry, I'm leaving the country. You should just deal with this. And at the end of the season, there's a point where Giles returns. Buffy is telling him about things that have happened. They're kind of laughing. But he tells her sometimes the most adult thing you can do is ask for help. And yes, Giles, I agree. And it's so weird that you don't think that in this episode or in Tabula Rasa. Perhaps the writers just didn't really think about that enough. And I know that they needed to do something so that Anthony Stewart had could be out of the show for most of the episodes but this is why I think their choice doesn't work despite this amazing emotional moment in Once More with Feeling. Of course the biggest foreshadowings here are Buffy and Spike and the whole episode shows the the push and pull of their relationship. Spike is saying how he feels but he he wants to be around Buffy even if she isn't ready to be with him and yet it's painful for him it's really hard Buffy feels this attraction to Spike as he says she is ashamed of it we will find out through the season she becomes involved with Spike but never tells her friends she hides it from them and they spend a lot of time with mixed messages about each other lots of that foreshadowed here one aspect that doesn't quite work for me is if I looked at this episode without knowing the rest of the season I would think that despite the sadness in Buffy saying I just want to feel I know this isn't real before she kisses Spike that this would be leading toward them having a better relationship because what prompts this moment in large part is that Spike does save her and he saves her not by just doing some sort of heroic thing or by being physically strong he saves her by telling her the truth by echoing back to her what she told dawn about the hardest thing is to live in the world and and basically saying look there are really hard hard times and you can only get through them by staying alive and getting through it but but you will it is uh, the best spike in that sense and that makes us think there is going to be a better relationship between them much like the episodes leading up to this where spike is the one she's honest with spike is the one who can sit with her with her difficult feelings where she feels the need to put on this face for her other friends and even once they know the truth it is really hard for them where spike is able to be there with her when she is depressed and able to let her feel that way and process those feelings and then instead the story of Buffy and Spike goes in a much different way and I'll talk about that when we get there I guess both are foreshadowed and you could see either one coming out of this because certainly we do have foreshadowed that Buffy has these mixed feelings so that is it for this episode one of my very favorites thank you again for listening come back in two weeks for another favorite episode of mine season six episode eight tabula rasa where willow uses yet another forgetting spell leading to some dire consequences but some brief joy for buffy 
If you enjoyed this episode of Buffy and the Art of Story, please rate or review it wherever you listen to podcasts, tell a friend about it, or share it on social media. You can find back episodes of the podcast on YouTube or at lisalilly.com, where you can also find my mysteries and thrillers and the Buffy and the Art of Story books. If you'd like to connect or share your thoughts about Buffy, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lisa M. Lilly, that's L-I-S-A-L-I-L-L-Y, or email me at BuffyStoryPod at gmail.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2023. All rights reserved.